Disenfranchised by the modern comics industry, Scott Gardner and Michael Bailey now ply the time stream in a never-ending quest to rediscover and reconnect with that unique brand of fun and excitement that can only truly be found in good old-fashioned, randomly selected comic book back issues. Journey with them now. Back. Back to the bins. All right, welcome back to another uh, episode of Back to the Bins. I'm Scott Gardner, and I'm here with my co-host, Michael Bailey. Hey, everybody. How you doing? I'm doing great. I'm, I'm really excited. I, I have a book here today that uh, it's from the 70s, and oh my God, is it awesome. And it's, really? And it's, and it's just strangeness. My God. I, I've, I actually, I pulled one out, and this is usually in my... Oh, wait a minute. Wait, wait, what the fuck is this? What? Oh man! <laughs> yes! Baba booey! Baba booey! Baba booey! Baba booey! Get out of here! Uh, okay. I am Scott Gardner. I can't tell you guys apart. I, I fucking all I fucking listen to is two true freaks. Yeah. <laughs> I think you're trying. You guys to... just you just, you guys just blend in together. It really it, 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 it's okay. <laughs> yeah, we're virtually synonymous, right? <laughs> Kind of. Oh, man. That was harsh. <laughs> so we got uh, no Hulk this week, but we got two books to talk about. Which I'm All right. Well, so speaking of the Hulk thing, you, you can go ahead and, and we'll address that real quick. Here, here's the, the long and short of it. Scott fucked up is the long and short I of it. I wasn't going to say that. It's just I was going to say we were going to do it next week. You're no, that's... One. No, that's fine. I, I don't mind taking... I'll take ownership of that. I fucked up. I, I <laughs> totally forgot that I was supposed to read... That it was my turn, basically, to read and, and synopsize the, the Hulk issues. So, I feel bad about that. But, we still have an awesome episode otherwise, because... Uh, I don't know about you, but I got a, I got a pretty cool book. It's an, a nice, meaty book to get into. But first... I wanted to address some of our emails. We have been uh, getting a nice, steady flow of emails into the show lately, and uh, just by the nature of the last couple of episodes, we haven't had a chance to get to them, so rather than let them pile up too high and get too backlogged, I wanted to uh, see if we can get a couple of them knocked out, and I really appreciate everybody writing into us, so I'll go ahead and dig into the first one here. Here? Yeah. Yeah? What was that Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yo, yeah, look right now, out yeah. here. <laughs> read these uh, emails here, boy. Oh, Belvedere, come here, boys. All right. <clears throat> Half here is a failure. To <laughs> yes, exactly. I can't talk. <clears throat> this one is from Jason Trenner, and it is titled, Thanks for reading my email. Hey, no problem. 
He says, I was surprised and honored for you to read my email on the air. Honored? Okay. <laughs> he says, okay, my secret origins. I'm a 29-year-old fanboy from Ohio. I got into comics in 1993. Yes, the dark age of comics. And I can say that I never got into comics because I thought they'd raise in value. Well, a good man, because <laughs> that's the wrong reason to get into comic books, in my opinion. It says I read them because I liked Marvel superheroes. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop it just for a second here. Mm-hmm. I feel like I really need to take on the role of the person that is going to defend the '90s because the '90s, yeah, there was a lot of crap. There was a lot of terrible books. Most of the books put out by Image, uh, with the exception of Savage Dragon and Spawn, were just pretty lousy. I thought. But there was a lot to like in the 90s, especially around 1993. Because 1993 was Reign of the Superman, Mm -hmm. which was the high watermark of the post-crisis Superman, in my opinion. I love that era. And you don't like the Batman of that era, but I do. But you had the Wally West Flash. Very soon you had Kyle Rayner as Green Lantern. So, you know, I don't think it's quite the dark age that everyone makes it out to be. I think people do that because it sounds funny. Well, I mean, I, I also refer to it as the dark age of comics, but for a whole different reason. But uh, I, I see where he's coming from, and I don't think he's down on. on no, the no, no. It's I, how, you know, it's when he got in and he stuck with it and all that. But no, I, I see where you're coming from. It's funny for me because I don't have that feeling about the '90s like so many other comics fans do because of what exactly what you were talking about. I stuck with my DC books. And rode the whole thing out, and to me, the '90s didn't suck like it did for for all these other people that fell victim to the speculator boom and the tits on the cover boom and the you know the Valiant and Image and all these other you know companies that popped up and a lot of them popped up and disappeared again very quickly. Yeah, I, I just I didn't fall victim to any of that. I I was blissfully unaware of most of it. You know, while everybody else was flipping out over, you know, all these, uh, you know, like Solar, Man of the Atom, and all that shit that popped up on the stands, and they, you know, Torok, Dinosaur Hunter, and all that. I mean, I was just going, on, you know, going to the shop and continuing to buy my Superman and whatever the hell else I was buying, and just, you know, stuck with what I always stuck with, and, and yeah. wrote it out, and I enjoyed the hell out of most of the '90s stuff. You know, it was only when that image influence really started to hit the mainstream stuff. Yeah. That, that I, then I s- started to feel it a little bit, you know, like... Uh, Gunfire. Yeah, stuff like that. But also, you know, a book that I really enjoyed, but it has some real 90s damage to it, is uh, like Extreme Justice. I thought the writing was pretty good, but you look yeah. at the art and it's like, holy shit, is that hard to look at, you know? It was trying to look like an image book, I think, and trying a little too hard. Well, the, the the title right there, Extreme Justice, right. was that, and it gets a really bad rap. But there was a lot of cool stuff going on in there with Captain Adam. Oh yeah, where it was revealed he's not really Nathaniel Adam; he's just a clone created in the the quantum stream, and that the other Nathaniel Adam is Monarch. And I was like, that's an interesting concept. It mm-hmm. had an amazing man. It had Maxima. It had a really good blue and the gold. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, dynamic too. So, and it brought Zan and Jaina into DC Comics. Yeah. 
So. Well, I like the whole storyline, the little subplot thing that was going on where where Blue Beetle got really pissed at Booster because he found out that Booster apparently knew what was going to happen to him yeah. during the whole Doomsday incident and didn't warn him. You know, and here he was supposed to be his best friend, but he lets him get, like, critically injured. I thought that was a pretty good storyline. But anyway, continuing on in his uh, email here, he says, I started reading DC in 2007 and am now extremely well-versed on DC. I think the Silver Age stuff DC is trying to inject into the DCU is mostly crap I could care less about. Anyway, on to Avengers West Coast number 50. I've read it in back issue and trade form. I have to say, Burns making Scarlet Witch made sense. Her husband got taken apart. Her teammates don't notice any changes in Vision's personality. The origin that was part of what gave Vision the courage to marry Wanda turned out false, and her kids turned out to be pieces of a ruler of hell's soul. Yeah, that was some good stuff. I enjoyed all of that. What I don't get is why Bendis said Wanda forgot about her kids. Seriously, given the mess that was, that's not forgetting, that's just avoiding a painful subject. Of course, I'm of the opinion Bendis has never uh, gotten what makes the Avengers great. I don't know about that. I mean, I'm not a Kool-Aid drinker on Bendis. I think he's got his good stuff and his bad stuff, but uh, I don't know. I, I kind of liked parts of, you know, elements of that story and everything. I always it, thought it, that there was a backstory explanation for why she had forgotten about her kids, but now I couldn't tell you what the hell it was. I don't remember either. I, I, I mean, I've read not a, not like all of, but I've read a good bit of his Avengers stuff. And it's not for me. It's not to my sensibilities because I think, I think Bendis, v- Bendis falls prey to something my friend George Barrowman commented on about Ultimate Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. It's just that he gets he gets so in love with the dialogue he's writing that sometimes it comes down to this is what George said to me. He's like, you know, it's like you read an entire page where it's like, really, uh huh, yeah, no way, really, yeah, uh huh, dude, yeah, dude. Dude, yeah. I mean, <laughs> and, it, and I'm just like... I think that was event, New Avengers number five, wasn't it? <laughs> just saying. Anyway, on to the original Human Torch. It stinks he doesn't get the credit he deserves. He is Marvel's first hero. That's very true. The title of the comic he appeared in is Marvel Comics. So no matter how bad it has been for Jim, it hasn't been as bad as Robert Grayman, a.k.a. Marvel Boy, got until Agents of Atlas came out. You guys ever going to review the What If issue? The 1950s Avengers, a.k.a. the Agents of Atlas, got together. You know, I'd love to. I don't think I have that particular issue, though. Do you know what issue number that is? I think it's the what if. I don't know the issue number off the top of my head, but I'm sure if I, you know, we did a quick search of. Uh, yeah, I'm looking through my covers of what if real quick, and I do not see it. So I don't believe I own that particular issue. But if I chance across it, absolutely, I'd love to cover that one because uh, they popped up in uh, Avengers Forever, and I thought they were kind of cool. So I'd, I'd love to know what the whole backstory is on that sort of thing. He says, and on to Batman Darkest Night. As bad as that story is, read Batman Abducted if you want a complete misfire of an idea. Batman fighting the Greys should be fun and likely involve the Green Lantern so Bruce can really stick it to them. Batman Abducted isn't that. Uh, Seriously, if you guys uh, have heard of Atop the Fourth Wall, I've suggested 
Batman abducted to him because it honestly blows. <laughs> I mean, trying to uh, set a story about alien abductions and stuff frankly becomes a mess when Superman and the Martian Manhunter get mentioned. Exactly, my that was what I was thinking too. And of course, the Green Lantern Corps is uh, in some form, plus some versions of Hawkman and Hawkgirl slash Hawkwoman turn, are there really aliens to, hey guys, I think the Greys did something to me. Well, where do they hang out and how hard is it to beat the crap out of them? <laughs> it's an excellent point because there are things that are going to put Marvel in DC, you know, the worlds that they take place in, there are things that are going to make them different from the world that we live in today. So th- this is the type of thing that would drive me nuts. Like uh, when, when comics try to be topical, and back in whatever decade that was, the 90s, I guess, the 90s or the aughts, I can't remember, when X-Files was, was the shit on TV. Yeah. I kept seeing all these X-Files references popping up in Marvel and DC books. And it drove me nuts because I'm telling you right now, there would be no show like X-Files in those universes because aliens have been coming to those worlds for like fucking 60 years, you know? Yeah, no so shit. So there's no mystery at all. I mean, the, the Fantastic Four's second adventure, they were fighting aliens. You know, this was back in 1960, whatever, 61, 62, whatever. Superman, depending on how wonky continuity is is an alien and we've known that since at least like the 50s that's when he first found out he was from another planet so depending on continuities and and how much of a wonk you want to be about it the people of those planets you know those earths in in marvel and dc they they know about aliens at this point so yeah you know they're (laughs) it's tuesday yeah exactly so i i have trouble believing that like Independence Day was a smash hit movie in the DC universe. There probably was no movie. Yeah, the the, the people of Melbourne, Australia, really don't want to see <laughs> Independence Day given the events of Invasion. Exactly. So <laughs> and, you know, so it's funny. I've never read Batman Abducted, but I had the same reaction to it when it was solicited way back in the day. Looking at it and going. Well, that's an interesting concept, except that his buddy on the Justice League is a fucking alien too, so what's the big deal? You know, it it doesn't work. I know what they were going for, and it works in, say, you know, like if Batman 3 comes out next year and it has aliens abducted in Batman, it works in that continuity because he's the only superhero in that continuity. But in the regular. (laughs) And you'd still hate it. Or, yeah, I probably would. Although it'd be fun to see, you know, Bale doing his, his, you know, goofy voice thing, fighting like E.T. or something. That kind of... E.T. found home. me! That, I would actually enjoy that. <laughs> he wraps up by saying, as for the Hulk, I was digging the Hulk in Peter David's brief second run, and then Planet Hulk and World War Hulk until Loeb's brainless run. Well, uh, I guess I've made my levels of fanboyishness clear and love your podcast. Keep up the good work, guys. And this is from Jason Trenner. Thank you very much, Jason. I enjoyed your email very much. As did I. Oh, I like this one. You give me this one, don't you? I'll read this one if you want me to. No, I got it. I got it. This is from Jack uh, Perez. The The subject is, um, the explanation. 
And he says, okay, I'm halfway through Back to the Bins and was listening to you guys trying to figure out what the guy was saying to you. See you next Tuesday. C-U-N-T. <laughs> no disrespect intended. I was just spelling it out. Just thought I'd let you know. Cheers. Jack. I love this email because when I saw it, I was like, oh, duh, of course. I <laughs> didn't, my mind for a change actually wasn't going to that place, so I just didn't catch it. But yeah, that's actually very funny. Because my mind often goes to vagina. So. <laughs> <laughs> my mind pretty much hangs out in the gutter 24 7, so I'm pr- surprised I didn't catch that one. <laughs> Okay, and we got another one from our good friend Jose Rivera, and he writes in about Back to the Bins number 41. He says, Hey, Scott and Michael, I enjoyed this episode for the diversity of issues you two mentioned, but I also want to talk about uh, what was said about current comics fans and older comics fans. I believe it's true that comics fans today aren't programmed for done-in-one stories. I grew up in the 80s and 90s when comics were hitting their zenith in popularity, but falling down in stories. I was more into the back issues uh, given to me that are that were usually from the 70s to early 80s, which is why I enjoy the Brave and the Bold discussion so much. Brave and the Bold, along with DC Comics Presents, really helped me learn about characters I had never uh, heard of like Nemesis and Commandy, or even the backups with the human target. I love Jim Aparo's art. Hmm. Yes, he drew what I consider to be my Batman. Absolutely, he's my bat. He's my Batman artist too. Uh, I loved his styles. Other artists I enjoyed growing up were George Perez, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, Jerry Ordway, and anyone else uh, who would draw heroes in a clean and dynamic style. Though I suspect all the art from the superhero, or excuse me, superpowers figures had something to do with it as well. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. But I'm losing my train of thought. I also agree that younger comic fans are programmed to follow the right for the trade style. Yes, unfortunately, I agree with that. Which really bothers me on the same level Scott's mentor of comics was bothered by Crisis on Infinite Earths. I know I'm going to sound like an old fogey. Hey, I'm only 26, he says. But I remember a time when trades were collections of many stories for a decent price as opposed to six issues for $25. That's a damn good point. Mm -hmm. But it seems the old days are gone and the new is here to stay. Well, you know, not necessarily. I, I say this shit all the time. And this is one of those instances where, you know, I don't think of myself as like... You know, I don't want to sound big-headed, because I really don't think of myself as, like, the man with the answer, you know, this fucking super genius that everybody should listen to or something. I'm just a guy that likes to fucking spout off his mouth. However, in this one instance, I do think I have the answer, which is, don't fucking buy it. If you don't support the retarded decisions that these companies make, like this wait-for-the-trade mentality and stuff, then don't support it. And the way that you don't support it is you don't buy it. It's as simple as that. I, I'm so tired of people, you know, my, my fellow, my brothers and sisters in, in the comics fans community feeling like they're powerless. Like they have no say in anything that goes on. And you have all the power because you have the money that these companies want. So if you don't like Book X or you don't like what's done to a certain character, or you don't like that your favorite movie franchise just got fucking rebooted, don't buy it. 
Don't go see it. Don't spend your money on it. It's as simple as that. And that sends a very clear message to the company when they start looking at their facts and figures and talking to their bean counters and going, whoa, what the fuck? You know, this used to be the best-selling book, and now nobody's buying it. We must have fucked up along the line somewhere. we got to figure out how to get back right with the fans. That's what I really want to see happen in comics. And it can happen as long as people... <clears throat> as long as people learn to... Um, you know, uh, break their spending habits and not just continue to blindly buy books just because they don't want holes in their collections or that sort of thing. <laughs> I'm sorry, Michael. I'm not. I'm what, not what? 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 I'm not. What? I'm sorry. I was. I was. Uh, I was looking at the book I was going to talk about today. You asshole. No, I'm sorry. I, I about half no, that, that I realized that it was going to suddenly sound like I was dogging you personally, which I didn't mean it that way. But, no, but I, it, I am serious about that. That that's the way to break that vicious cycle, in my opinion. Yes, and no, I had to when I uh, when I was on a Walter uh, T.S. Champ show, uh, uh, face the comic book nation. I, I had to give that piece of advice and say, realize that I am a complete hypocrite when I say this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I I I only playfully give you a shit about that only because I uh, I know I've said this to you a million times, but I know how hard it is. I really, it's not a fucking easy thing to do. It's I know it's not because I've done it myself. You know, and there there are times when you know even today, all these years later, I look back on you know like Batman. You know, cutting off Batman was really really hard for me to do. You know, and every once in a while, somebody will talk about some storyline that I missed and talk about how great it was or whatever. And I start to think, damn, you know, I wish I'd stuck with it. And then I remember all the reasons why I didn't stick with it. You know, I think you should at least check out prodigal to see uh, Dick Grayson as Batman done right. Mm -hmm. Cause I thought it was an incredibly good story. It only lasted four months. I mean, three months. Is that the new stuff or is that the stuff? No, that, That's the stuff from right after zero hour and nightfall. Oh, okay, yeah. Some of that I do have because it had. Uh, well, I think I have the Robin issues because that um, was Grummet. by Tom Grummet. Yeah, and I'm a big Grummet fan. Hell yeah! Though a couple of those issues were drawn by Phil Jimenez. I like him too. So uh, yeah, good stuff. Oh, yeah, it is. It's excellent stuff. He wraps up by saying, "Anyway, I just wanted to say how much I enjoy Back to the Bins and how welcoming it is to hear Michael being uh, a permanent part of the show. Absolutely." He says, and a suggestion for a time when the Hulk segment runs out, or if there are no interesting ads, how about a mini spotlight on a comic strip by Fred Hembeck? Hell yeah. And I'll go you one better. No promises here, but uh, you know, I'm, Fred's, I'm friends with Fred on, uh, on Facebook, and I'm wondering what the possibility might be to actually rope him into an episode sometime. So, uh, yeah, that, that's definitely a definite maybe. It would it would be even better to have him bring a comic to talk about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, see what he would bring. <laughs> Absolutely. He says, "P.S. Cupcake Idol. Uh, how in the f- flying fuck is it a forerunner to the modern cupcake?" Oh, he's talking about that hostess ad with yeah. uh, with Wonder Woman. Yeah, that one makes no <laughs> sense. Cupcakes aren't exactly rocket science, and I don't. Think, uh, don't think the recipe has changed much uh, in their creation. Yeah, I, I agree with you. You know, the sad thing is, is I've noticed that the hostess ads start to get more intelligent as time goes on. And I'm really going to miss 
the ones that just make you go, what, what, what the, the fuck? fuck? Yeah, you know, you just <laughs> don't know what the hell was somebody thinking. I'm, I'm going to miss that because we're, we're going to do one here pretty soon that's actually pretty sensible, you know, for the most part. So yeah. I've, I've kind of got one later in the show that is uh, that's sensible. Oh, cool! I've got one too, and I can't remember if it was a really goofy one or a really, uh, really nonsensical one. I, you know, I, I don't, I don't remember. All right, we got one last piece of feedback here that I wanted to uh, to bring to your attention, and I don't think that Michael's uh, heard this one, so I was very excited about this one. Excited, and after reading it, a little bit nervous, and I'll, I'll tell you why in a minute. But if you remember, a couple episodes back. We had some issues going on with scheduling and stuff. And uh, first, I knocked out a solo episode, and then Mike followed up with a with a solo episode. In my solo episode, I talked about an issue of Brave and the Bold from back in the day, and this is some feedback I got on it. Bullshit science. No, no, my friend. I'm a certified cryptonitologist trained by Julius Schwartz. Jim Apero made everything he touched look good, especially when it came to drawing women. By the way, I'm one of the Dan Spiegel admirers, but to each his own. Anyway, thanks for taking a look at one of the oldies and for taking a uh, look at it in the context of its time. And this is by Paul Kupperberg, who was the writer of the issue that I reviewed. So I thought that was really awesome. However, it's hard to tell... somebody's tone of voice sometimes in, a, yeah. in an email or in an instant message or something like that. So I wasn't sure if he was actually taking exception to my calling an ele- There was an element in the story that involved kryptonite or something, and I called it bullshit science, but I didn't mean it in a, in like a criticizing way. It just, you know, <laughs> that's, I mean, that's comic books, man. I mean, you know, Peter Parker getting bit by a radioactive spider and not fucking dying from it, but becoming a Spider-Man, that's bullshit science. So that's all I meant by it. But anyway, I wrote back to uh, Mr. Kupperberg and uh, was like, gee, I really hope, you know, and I went into this long thing about, gee, I really hope I didn't offend you and blah, blah, blah. He wrote back saying, no offense taken, it's all bullshit science. So he agreed with me completely. (laughs) He said... Uh, and I always had fun playing with it. Uh, he said, this was the first episode I'd heard. My kid set up a Google alert on my name, so uh, this stuff just pops up. Anyway, uh, I'd be happy to come on the podcast and talk about whatever. Any publicity is good publicity. Drop oh, me a line yeah. and we can set something up. Take okay. care, Paul Kupperberg. So, yes, I am totally about getting Paul Kupperberg on the show sometime to talk about Whatever so. he, wrote, he wrote that uh, Power Girl miniseries from the from like eighty seven eighty eight. That's right. That's right. And we're gonna have to review that at some point. So yeah, but yeah, I would. You know what I'd really like is, is what you proposed with uh, with Fred Hembeck is to to write Paul back and say, hey, grab a comic, come on the show and talk about whatever the hell you want because I think that could be a lot of fun. You know, rather than do. An interview or something like that, you know, something something a little stodgier, you know, do something just a little more free flowing, and you know, bring him in just as a fellow comic book fan and see what he see what he's got to talk about. I think that could be a hell of a lot of fun, but we'll see where that pans out. So I think that's it for this time, and uh, we'll go ahead and let's dive into our issues now. Who the hell goes first in this one? I believe it's your turn to go. <gasps> oh no, the pressure's on. The pressure's on. All right. 
So, I have a Marvel comic book, and we are going back to 1979. Now, this is to try to fulfill something of a listener request. <laughs> this one's got a bit of a story behind it, because not long ago we had a, a request in one of our emails to give love to a particular Marvel property, and that, you know, the, the listener pointed out that, we hadn't really ever given any love to before, so I, I felt a little bad about that. And I thought, well, okay, I'll, I'll see if I can dig out something with this particular property. And I had a book all picked out and ready to go and everything. And then we hit our little scheduling thing. And in your solo episode, Mr. Bailey, you picked out X-Force number one, which was awesome, which was totally cool. But it was also really funny that you picked it out saying, ah, Scott will never want to talk about this. And what's funny is I had just picked out my Marvel comic for our next episode together, and my Marvel comic was uh, New Mutants number 98. So I was pretty close to the book that you ended up picking for that episode. So this is not New Mutants number 98, but I did still want to try to go with uh, a little bit of X-Men love. So I picked out Uncanny X-Men Annual Number 3 from 1979. It's got a cover on it by Terry Austin and Frank Miller, which is, honestly, it's kind of ugly. I don't really like the cover on this one. However, the interiors are by George Perez and ah. Terry Austin, and it's freaking sweet. It's beautiful. I mean, this is really, really some nice, classic... Perez from, I believe, right around the time that he was uh, he was working on Avengers or going to work on Avengers. I think he was actually on Avengers right around this time, but uh, very much in that classic Perez style of the day, and it's really, really pretty. Written by Chris Claremont, and uh, all right, so this story is entitled "A Fire in the Sky," and by the way, this big whopping annual was only 75 cents and the story starts out where uh it's early on a sunday morning it's uh pre-dawn hours and these news vendors are picking up the sunday paper and, and preparing for their busy day when all of a sudden there's a bolt out of the blue that just about fries the guy and archon the magnificent has returned to earth and, you know, he's just an arrogant prick. And he, you know, he's this big... If you don't know who Archon is, he kind of looks like a cross between Conan the Barbarian and one of the Thunderers from... Uh, what the hell is that? Antimatter universe? Quard? Quard, Quard. Yeah, that's it. Thank you. So, uh, he storms across town to Avengers Mansion. And just as Jarvis is going out for the morning paper and to pick up the milk, here's uh, Archon at the door... He grabs Jarvis by the throat, slams him against the wall, and he's like, I demand to see Thor right now. You will summon him for me or I'll break your neck and all this shit. And he's being a real dick. And Jarvis is like, yeah, but Thor's not here. And so in his mind, he's thinking, oh, my mission's going to fail. You know, my people are doomed. And he's actually getting, like, telepathically talked to, kind of like Charles Xavier style, by this guy that identifies himself as the Grand Vizier. And the Grand Vizier is like, please hurry, you know, we're, we can't last much longer. You have to fulfill your mission. And he, like, telepathically gives Archon the, the mental image of another person who can hopefully 
fill Thor's shoes in this crisis and, and do for Archon whatever it is he wanted Thor to do. So we cut to the X-Mansion, and the X-Men are having their morning routine workout in the uh, Danger Room. And it is Colossus, Nightcrawler, Storm, Wolverine, Cyclops, and Banshee is up in the control room because this is at a time where Banshee has actually burned out his mutant power because he screamed himself silly in one of those early issues. But it's really cool because even though it's not burn, it's burn-esque just because, you know, this is totally the classic X-Men. You know, the classic, you know, all new, all different X-Men from from right after uh, giant size section. As a matter of fact, there's an editor's note to tell you that this particular event falls between issues 124 and 125 of the X-Men. So it, it actually dates it for you, so you know exactly where this is falling. And there's a great big to-do in the uh, danger room. And in the course of the fight, something happens to Storm to make her feel trapped and enclosed. And this is at a time when her... Uh, claustrophobia was really heavily played up and she flips out and she fries she like sets off basically what amounts to like an EMP pulse and fries the computer so then the danger room just goes completely batshit crazy and is trying to kill everybody Cyclops pulls off a daring move with his eye beams and manages to shut the whole thing off. It, it takes several pages for all this. I'm really giving you a very encapsulated version of all this. Yeah, it's really awesome. Yeah, it's some really, really beautiful art. Um, but there's it, it's really talky, and there's just a lot of things going on. So anyway, after the whole thing is over with, Storm feels really bad about what she did and that she flipped out and she put everybody in danger and everything, and Scott tries to talk her down about it. She goes upstairs to pout. And she's up in her attic, green greenery thing, greenhouse thing that she lives in. When Archon comes through, does the same shit to her that he did to Jarvis. Grabs her by the throat. You know, be silent, you will come with me. And she's like, no, nah, I don't think so. So they get into a big battle. <laughs> and about the time that the rest of the X-Men are downstairs going, man, there's a hell of a lot of noise upstairs. Here Archon comes crashing through the ceiling. And they get into this big fight. And... Uh, it's really cool because Archon is a pretty tough dude, and he can take like Cyclops's optic blast, and he can take a punch from Colossus. But when they all start to gang up on him, they're they're pretty much whooping the shit out of him at this one point. While he's got a moment when he's not getting his ass handed to him, he grabs a special lightning bolt thing out of his quiver on his back and throws it at Storm and she zaps out of existence and they all freak out because they think that they've just seen her be killed Yeah. so then they really lay into him and in a really great sequence uh, Colossus actually rips a tree out of the ground and just swats the shit out yes. of Archon with it it's great so then they finally get him on the ground and, and he's stunned and he's hurt and everything and he basically reveals that uh, Storm is not dead, that she had just been sent back to his home dimension, and that they really need, you know, he really needs her help and really needs the help of the X-Men. So then Colossus, or excuse me, Cyclops rather, takes the rest of the special lightning bolt things out of his quiver, throws them on the ground, And they are all instantly transported to Archon's world. And here we learn that basically what has happened 
is that Archon's world doesn't have a sun. Instead, their world is lit by these weird, like, rings around the planet. These energy ring things that cast light and energy and everything that basically they substitute for a sun. Well, the Avengers not long ago came to their planet to, to try to save them back in Avengers 75 and 76. Iron Man made this machine that was supposed to do something and Thor charged it up with his hammer and everything was going along hunky-dory but then the friggin' machine broke down and these people are screwed. Within a few hours, it's going to be too late for them to ever be able to restart the machine again. And they need basically somebody that can generate lightning to jumpstart this machine and get their rings back working again. And one of my favorite sequences of this entire book was the part where after Archon has come to Earth, been a complete douchebag to everybody, choked people, threatened people, smashed people through walls and ceilings, tore the shit out of the X-Mansion, abducted somebody... Then the others were brought to their planet. They got the shit kicked out of them by Archon's army. All this stuff has gone on. And then they finally corner Archon for an explanation. And he says, oh, by the way, perhaps I should have asked for your aid. I'm thinking, (laughs) you think? (laughs) Jesus Christ, dude. You know, I mean, what a a shitty leader, you know? I mean, these are superheroes, you know? All All he had to do was come to Earth and say... I need your help. My planet's going to die. And he would have gotten somebody to help him out, I'm sure. But instead, he goes the asshole route and and the long way around it, right? So really, this story should be about six pages long instead of, you know, the 46 that it is. But anyway, in the end, there's a really cool sequence where Storm has already made up her mind that she's going to help these people. Before the X-Men even arrived on Archon's planet... She had been filled in on the whole deal and and agreed to help them, even if it meant her own life. But Cyclops comes up with the plan that if they work together, that they should be able to save her people, save Archon's people, and neither one of them will have to die. Well, she generates this massive thing of, like, uh, I guess basically lightning in her body, stores up the charge, fires it into Cyclops supercharges him and then he blasts the doohickey with his visor beam thing and it re-energizes the rings and the planet is saved and everybody's cool at the end of the story and everybody's all friends and Archon now likes the X-Men and invites them to stay there in his dimension and be warriors for him and they're like "Uh, no thanks dude you're kind of a dick send us home and that's pretty much how the story ends and it was pretty cool except for the fact of when the hell did Cyclops get the ability to channel lightning? Uh, in this issue. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's what I thought. But, you know, as goofy as the story was and everything, it was classic X-Men. It totally felt like classic, you know, Claremont X-Men, which it is. And I dug the art, man. It is, I mean, it's classic Perez. It's got way too much, like, to. Uh, debris and destruction and well, shit being torn up and I love that. That to me is classic comics and I, I just love this. Well what's great about it, because I've been following along in my Essential X-Men Volume 3 where this is reprinted. Oh, okay. Is that at times it looks like Perez 
And at other times, it looks like John Byrne and Terry Austin. Mm-hmm. I would say that that's probably the uh, the Austin influence. Although I wouldn't be surprised if if George was purposely aping Byrne a little bit just to be consistent. You know, to give it a consistent look because Byrne was on the monthly at this point. You know, he was the monthly artist. So. But you can tell Perez did this because, like earlier in the book, after the whole Danger Room sequence. Scott and Aurora are talking, mm-hmm. and instead of just having a panel of them facing each other and talking and, like, the word balloons going back and forth, there's four panels where, in the background, Scott takes off his visor, he's got his eyes clenched really tight, mm-hmm. and then he puts on his sunglasses and looks up, and it's just this really neat artistic decision to show, you know, when he changes out of his costume, he's got to hold back all of this power. Right. And that's a very Perez thing to do. Right. To to show characterization, strong characterization in the most mundane of situations. Because it's just a, cost, a, uh, a, a, a conversation about, you know, her life back home and how she was happy in Kenya and all that. So, you know, I, 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 I haven't read it. Uh, but just looking through it, it's just freaking awesome. And when and when Colossus rips up that tree mm-hmm. and just pulls a freaking Babe Ruth on him, you know, Scott says that did the trick. Colossus, he's down. He can't hurt us anymore, Peter. Let him be. Because you get the feeling that Colossus was just going to keep hitting this guy with the tree. Yeah, well, he's still got the rest of the tree that didn't break when he clobbered the guy. I had the feeling he was about to stuff it right up his ass. It's great. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I love this era of X-Men, too. Mm -hmm. It's really weird where it's reprinted in the Essentials. It's in Volume 3, which reprints 145 to 161. Oh, that's weird. Yeah, that's really strange. Yeah, that's way out of sequence at that. Point. So, but but it was it's still neat that I was able to finally follow along with one of the books you were talking about. <laughs> well, part of that part of it that you probably won't be able to follow along with is the ads. Uh, and most yeah. of them are fairly mundane. You got your uh, ubiquitous uh, BB gun ad. I don't <laughs> We Jesus, hate those. <laughs> You got the classic uh, Hubba Bubba ad, which I always got a kick out of. With the kid in the cowboy hat? Yep. Uh, yep, that's yeah. the one. And let me see what else is in here. There is a Hostess ad. I'll come back to that one in a moment because I want to see if there are any others. <gasps> There's one for Migos, which has just absolutely horrible art. Uh, let's see here. We got Oh, we got a centerfold. Well, it's not really a fold, but it's in the center of the book. And it's a two-page spread. Of all the Kenner Star Wars toys. And oh my god does this take me back. Because I had just about everything on this page. I had the Death Star playset. I had every figure seen on this page. Basically the only things on this page I didn't ever get. Was the Imperial Troop Transport. The remote control Jawa Sandcrawler. Which I don't believe ever really existed. Because I sure never saw the damn thing. And then the Star Wars Droid Factory, although I did have a lot of stolen parts to the the Star Wars Droid Factory, which is <laughs> a story for another day. That's another podcast, actually. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, exactly. Let's see. Oh, there's a ROM ad for the ROM toy. And I think what there's an actually ugly a ROM. toy. 
It is, but he's awesome standing on my shelf looking at me. That's okay. No, I wasn't insulting the toy. I'm just saying (laughs) from reading the comic with that great Sal Buscema artwork, going to the toy, you know, it's like seeing the picture of the girl online and then meeting her at the uh, Starbucks. (laughs) It's just like, wow. There actually is an ad for the for the comic itself opposite the last page. It's the one, you know, he strikes from outer space, cleaving through the sky like a fiery sword of justice. And, you know, it's that one where he's... thought the Dire Wraiths, which I always thought was some kind of 80s goth band. (laughs) Shows what I know. Fought the Dire Straits. (laughs) It was something like Shriek Back more than Dire Straits, so... (laughs) There's a Corgi ad with all the awesome superhero cars and everything. I always thought that uh, Captain Marvel got kind of gypped, though, because his car doesn't... I had a shitload of those cars. Do you really? No, I had. Oh, okay. I was a kid. I don't, I'd love to have that Supermobile now. Yeah, I'd, lo- I'd gladly trade the one car that I do have. I have the Batmobile. I'd gladly trade it for a Supermobile. I'd love to have one of those. Yes, well, you should. But that takes us to the Hostess ad. This one is pretty freaking cool. It's Mr. Fantastic in A Passion for Gold, or as I like to call it, I'm totally gay for you, Mr. Fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) So we have uh, the caption page here is this dude. He looks a lot like Goldbug, but his name is actually Gold Digger. It says, Gold Digger, a nefarious villain with a taste for gold and power to make himself intangible face-to-face with... The incredible Mr. Fantastic. And he's actually shooting Mr. Fantastic. And Mr. Fantastic is all, you know, in his elongated form. And you see the bullets, like, going into his midsection. He says, I'll let those blasts stretch me backwards far enough for them to lose their momentum, Gold Digger. And then he slings them back and he says, and I'll send them right back where they came from. But Gold Digger's gone all intangible. He says, nothing can harm an intangible man, Mr. Fantastic. Mr. Fantastic reaches for him and his arm just goes right through him and he says ha ha uh, not even you can get your hands on me so mr fantastic says he's right instead i'll get my hand on something that will cause gold digger to deactivate his intangible powers and you see his arm going behind him and just reaching completely blindly like across town oh my god which i don't know how the hell that works but then we see gold digger around the corner of a building and you just see this hand stretch around the corner and drop Hostess Twinkies into his hands and he says hey Hostess Twinkies cakes golden bars of delicious sponge cake cream filling too <laughs> and then on the last panel Mr. Fantastic you know he's, he's got his limbs all stretched out and he's totally all wrapped around uh, Gold Digger he's got him tied up basically to a uh, like one of those street lights you know the ones that yeah. uh tell the pedestrians whether they can walk or not but granted he's using his body to tie up the villain to yeah. this post and he says your taste for golden goodness made you vulnerable gold digger and gold digger says the hostess twinkies cakes are worth it they're almost as great as you are <laughs> it's creepy creepy maybe gold digger likes to partake in the love that dare not speak its name i think so he just looks a little too happy to be all wrapped up in Mr. Fantastic. Oh, God. You get a big delight in every bite of Hostess Twinkies cakes. Is that Rich Buckler art? You know, it sure as hell looks like it now that you... Well, I don't know. It looks almost like John Buscema as well. Oh, are you it's looking really... at it too? Yeah, I found it online. Yeah, it 
it uh, you know the face of Mr. Fantastic, like on the uh, what is this fifth panel, looks like Rich Buckler, but then the face of Gold Digger making that really stupid like hey a Twinkie face on the bottom right there doesn't at all to me. So I don't know. It's hard to tell who did this one. <laughs> That's it, awesome. It does look a lot like Buscemi now that you say that. So it's it, it's hard a little to bit. Tell. But yeah, fantastic issue. I got a real kick out of it, and I'm glad that I enjoyed it because not the biggest X-Men fan. And I was a little bit afraid that uh, that you know our, our listener wanted us to give a little X-Men love, and I was really afraid that, you know... Because I, I picked out a couple books. I had a, a bit of a choice, and the other one that I thought about was uh, X-Men Annual Number 4. With but, Doctor Strange. Yeah, but just kind of thumbing through that one, I was like, I don't know, it looks like I'm not going to dig this book. So I didn't go with that one. Well, as a... T- oh, go ahead, sorry. I just, cause I just wanted to go with one that I, I was almost guaranteed to like, and I have seldom ever disliked a George Perez-drawn issue. Yeah, I, to give a little bit of a tease, I have two X-Books in the stack again. So, ah, okay. So it'll be kind of interesting. So are we ready for me? Absolutely. Okay, are you familiar with Robert Kaninger? Uh, yes, I, I, I'm familiar with the name. Okay. I'm trying to think off the top of my head what he had worked on. He was a writer and editor at DC through the 40s, 50s, 60s, and all the way up to the 80s. Uh, and, and he's most notable for his war books. He wrote okay, a crap yeah. load of war books. And, but the thing is about Robert Kaninger is that his approach to writing was he'd sit down and just start typing. He wouldn't have a plan. In fact, uh, according to the book Comic Book Heroes, written by Gerard Jones and Will Jacobs, I don't have the exact quote, uh, but Kaninger said that people who plan out their stories and write them are just typists. You know, it's, it's better to let the story flow. And what this produced were some bugfuck stories. If you ever read any Mar- uh, Wonder Woman from the 50s and 60s, that made absolutely no sense. It was probably written by Robert <laughs> If you read a war story where it was from the perspective of an M16, it was probably written by Robert Kaninger. So it, it doesn't surprise me that the book that I picked out, that I bought uh, on our convention hopping back at the beginning of March, uh, excuse me, February, it's the beginning of March now, uh, I bought an issue of First Issue Special, number four, from July 1975. <laughs> I know what this is. As a 25-cent cover price, and this is Lady Cop. The first thing I'm going to say before we get into this is that, oddly enough, I kind of liked this story. That doesn't mean that I am not going to sit here and pick it apart. But the story is written by Robert Kaninger with art by John Rosenberger and Vince Coletta. And the art in this issue is actually really good. So we open up with Lady Cop before she is Lady Cop. (laughs) It's Lady Cop! Anyways, Liza Warner is hiding under the bed as this man wearing cowboy boots that has this little trinket basically attached to it of skull and crossbones is killing her roommates and leaving behind a ace of spades and she's just basically hiding under the bed watching all of this happen which i thought was a really odd way to begin this story because i saw it very cinematically as i was reading it and how horrific it was so the cops arrive and 
you know, they, they, you know, they take her statement and there's people like, you know, there's a police photographer taking pictures of the bodies. And after they all leave, a female cop is left with her and she, you know, she says, how can I ever forget that I hid under the bed like a mouse terrified of its life while my roommates were being murdered? And she goes, there's this really interesting image of her eye and inside the eye is the boots that the killer wore. And it says, all I could see of the killer were his western boots, white with black skull and crossbones dangling from the laces, and laughing about killing women like they were nothing but cards, aces of spades. So the female cop says, you know, you have, you've got the camera eye of a born police officer. You know, and, you know, you, you know, we need more people like you on the force. So as she tosses and turns all night, dreaming of the boots with the dangling skull and crossbones, she decides to join the police academy. And she goes through all the courses. And it's really interesting because <laughs> her instructor has a very interesting opinion uh, of the tools of the uh, of the police aca- uh, the police officer trade it says recruits of the police academy this weapon and he's holding a gun a 38 special he goes this woman is t- this weapon is to arrest not punish always remember a clear conscience is the softest pillow stop not kill your arsenal is composed of three karate kicks three judo throws the wrestling tactic of bridging Boxing, defensive blocking, but most of all, you're cool. So she goes all through the police academy and graduates. And at the graduation ceremony, this guy comes running up to them after the, I guess, the commandant, who I hear in my head as Commandant Lassard from the police academy movie. So he says, now that you've graduated with honor, your job begins 24 hours a day, on duty or off, to protect the innocent from crime, corruption, drugs. The heart of of this great city lies in your hands. And this man runs up going, lies, lies! You ruined me when you flunked me out of the academy for being unfit. I'll show you how fit I am. And he's got a grenade, which Liza <laughs> takes from him and throws into a trash can. The trash can kind of like takes off like a rocket, and so the uh, the commandant's like, "Welcome to the force, well done, Officer Warner." So on, <laughs> you know how DC and Marvel books of this era had like the you know trapped you know caught in the heart of a of a gamma ray explosion, Bruce Banner, <laughs> blah 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 blah. Well, this is what we have for Liza Warner. The gleaming badge on the blue uniform is a lighthouse beacon for floundering humans. In the stormy sea of humanity, in the manic metropo- maniac metropolis, it also is a target for the human sharks that lurk in the shadows. The uniform which puts its owner, heart, and life on the line 24 hours a day is worn by Officer Liza Warner. And the title of this story, Poisoned Love. Now, <laughs> keep that title in your head. So we open up where we see this guy who's kind of dressed like a hippie manhandling this woman who tells him to stop. So Liza, of course, breaks it up and, you know, you know, tells her to go away, you know, you know, run. I've got this and points out, you know, that girl's underage. You could do some serious time. Suddenly his friend comes up behind her and grabs Liza and her shirt comes open a little bit. Uh, and a little bit of her hair falls out from the hat, which is kind of hot. But <laughs> anyways, not supposed to be, but it is. So they're basically going to attack her. Um, 
and he actually the the guy in the uh, that was uh, manhandling the woman grabs her and kisses her, and she okay. It looks like she's trying to kick him. I get it that she just need this guy in the balls as hard as she could, mm-hmm. and then she whips her head back and reverse headbutts the other guy. So they're taken into custody and she keeps thinking about the girl who uh, ran away and she doesn't know her name. So she continues, uh, after being threatened by the guy, she continues on her <laughs> on her route and does a very good deed by buying a girl that can't afford ice cream some ice cream. You know, lose one, win one. That little girl made me feel it's all worthwhile, not hopeless. So then a woman comes up and says that, you know, that hombre you arrested, senorita, muy malo. (laughs) God, it's so bad. (laughs) So, uh, you know, she's basically warning her to be careful. And as she's thinking about this, she doesn't have to worry about anybody. There is a guy sitting on top of a roof holding a chain watching her. So she finds the girl and overhears uh, her talking to her boyfriend, Eddie, who's leaving her, but not before saying, oh, by the way, I gave you VD. So, <laughs> so the girl runs away. And Happy she, Valentine's Day. So the girl runs away. Liza tries to run after her again, but she sees a, a fruit stand being robbed. The guy pulls a knife on her. She takes him down. Turns out that the store owner was... She takes him down really awesome, too. She uses her hat to block his knife and just shoves her elbow into his neck. (laughs) I was just like, wow, that's kind of cool for 70s uh, comic book card. (laughs) So the store owner is having some kind of heart attack. She gives him CPR. The cops come. The dude's taken away. The store owner is taken to the uh, um, hospital... One of the male cops makes a really sexist comment. She goes, you sure don't sound like the weaker sex. That's only a fairy tale men made up. So, so she goes back to the um, to the precinct where she is met by her boyfriend who says, Liza, I'll drive you home so you can get out of that uniform and then we'll go to the beach. And it cuts to them at the beach where he's like, baby, all my friends are giving me a hard time because you're a cop. You need to resign. It's like, wow, you're an asshole. (laughs) And she tells him she's just gotten onto the job, so she can't. And as she's sitting there making out with her boyfriend on the beach, she thinks about how she can't stop thinking about finding the killer of her roommates 24 hours a day, even now. And I'm sorry. If I ever got the the, uh, idea that the, the woman I was making out with was thinking about the brutal murder of two of her roommates while making out with me. Yeah, that'd probably be the end of that relationship. (laughs) So the next day, um, actually three days later, she finds the, the panicky girl and she's like, you know, who looks like she's about to jump into the river and she convinces her to talk to her father, even though she doesn't want to and tell him about the VD. And she's like, no, my mother died. He won't understand. You know, my mother was perfect and he wants me to be perfect, but I have VD. So the doc worker father just happens to walk up on them and she explains, looks like she whispers into his ear, dad, I got the clap. And the father goes, you, you, my own daughter, my own flesh and blood. Your mother was a saint. 
and he goes to punch her, and Liza moves her out of the way and takes a full-on fist to the face. So then, after I guess recovering very quickly, he uh, she like guilts the father into saying, you know, this is your daughter. Would your wife, you know, would your late wife want you to react like this? She needs your help now. She's sick, and he starts crying and hugs his daughter, and you know, she says, no, it's all my fault. So. They walk away, and suddenly the dude that was watching her the other day with the chain comes and attacks her. She, uh, he tries to hit her with a chain. She wraps it around her arm, and they both fall into the river, and he turns into a complete whiny baby, you know, say, don't let me go, because apparently he can't swim. So he's arrested, and the final panel, it says, next day, wonder if I'll ever find the killer in the boots, and that's the end of the issue. <laughs> this story was like a dream and when i say that i mean shit just happens there's no real rhyme or reason it's just like you know the first scene is very strong the murder of her roommates and then you know okay that's a good motivation for her to become a cop and as soon as she becomes a cop it's just like all these things just keep happening to her you know, she she breaks up the guy, macking on the underage girl. Uh, you know, she gets attacked. She beats them up. They're arrested. She walks down the street. She buys a little girl some ice cream. She's warned about the thugs. She finds the girl again. Oh, there's a robbery. You know, she fights that guy, knocks him out, gives the owner CPR, you know, goes back to the precinct, hooks up with her boyfriend, makes out with him on the beach. Three days later, she finds the girl. Her dad just happens to walk up. You know, she takes a, a fist to the face, family drama, and then the guy just comes out of nowhere and attacks her, and that's the end of the issue. <laughs> maybe this has just happened? Maybe this is Gotham City, because shit like this <laughs> happens in Gotham City. The, the thing that doesn't make any sense to me is, okay... On page two, you got the female cop. Oh, God, you have this? I've got the CBR. I looked it up real quick because I had to follow along with this shit because I was like, this is... Am I wrong, though? Isn't this like the most random story? Yes, it is completely because, I mean, your your recap was excellent. But without having the issue, I was like, I've got to be missing something. But then I'm looking through it. I'm going, no, you hit every beat (laughs) and this shit doesn't make any sense. (laughs) Well, okay. Right off the bat, one of the things that doesn't make sense is, okay, now, later, after she's been through the police academy and she's actually on the force, she's, like, not just lady cop. She's, like, super lady cop, right? She's, like, the best fucking cop they've got on the force, right? Uh She's all, like, you know, like, policewoman crossed with the bionic woman and shit. (laughs) However, I can't get over the fact... um, didn't this story start with her cowering under the bed while yeah. <laughs> friends were murdered? So on page two, you've got this lady cop telling her, you know, what a great eye she's got. And, you know, she says, uh, wish we had more women like you applying for the police academy. You mean more women that hide under the bed while people are getting <laughs> murdered? I was like, what? I mean, wow, they're police you know, roles must be really low at this point. You know, the now, now if this was a Cinemax movie at about two o'clock in the morning, that wish we had more women applying like you applying for the police academy would be followed by her taking off her hat and loosening yep. the buttons on her shirt. <laughs> yep. <laughs>
That's the way I like to picture that it went in my mind. <laughs> But you know what? As goofy as this story is, and as much as it's just random as hell, I still kind of like it in a really bizarre way. It's just... It's like a fever dream. It's There is potential here. That's the weird thing, is that I could see someone taking this concept today and making a really good series out of it. Now, a woman cop wouldn't be so weird in the, you know, in the, in the aughts as it was, I guess, right. in the 70s. But my, my other question and my other big note is, you know, James Robinson has made a habit of grabbing characters from first issue special. You know, he, he brought the blue alien Starman into his Starman series. Yes. And in Superman, he's brought in not only Atlas, which was a Jack Kirby first issue special. But he also brought in Codename Assassin, which was another first issue special, wasn't it? I believe so, yeah. Where's Lady Cop? She died in the crisis. <laughs> she, she tried to kick the anti-monitor in the Yahoos, and it didn't go too well for her. You're right, though, that uh, that shot of her, uh, with her with her blouse all open there when those two guys are, are trying to molest her, that is damn hot, though. <laughs> why is a cop of all of all ladies? Why is a lady cop not wearing a bra? I, I just yeah, I no need to know this. <laughs> the art in this is really good, though. I was very impressed yeah. with the art throughout the. No, seriously, for what this story was, I was expecting shit art. It's not shit, but at the same rate, it's inked by Vinnie Coletta, which is funny because I, I missed the credits at the beginning and I was as you were describing this in my mind I'm thinking it's gotta be inked by Vinny Coletta that just sounds like a story that, that he would have done so yeah I wasn't surprised to but I, it's not shit you're right but at the same rate it's it's not glorious either like for example that, that picture that I'm all worked up over right now look at the badge on her chest it looks like a postage stamp it doesn't even look like a badge <laughs> But the backgrounds are kind of cool. Yeah. You know, they, they do a good job of letting you know this is the mean streets of some <laughs> generic America. I mean, this this does feel like a pilot from the 70s. Yes. Yes, it, it does. really, really does. And it's just, but you can tell that Robert Kaninger was just making this shit up as he went along. <laughs> but it's at the end, oh yeah, I gotta have the attack. And then, finally at the end, because I expected that this being a first issue special, that she would track down the killer right? brutally murdered Manson like her roommates and it's just an afterthought right in two scenes so. oh yeah by the way I wonder if I'll find the guy who spurred the entire issue <laughs> yeah, literally you, you know what this really feels like what? this feels like an issue of Lois Lane is what it feels like you yeah know, especially around where, this time yeah where, yeah, Lois decides to go undercover as a cop for for like a two issue story to get the goods on some somebody for some damn thing. That that's it. Really does feel like that. Now the uh, the ads in this are pretty good. I'll, I'll I'll skip the hostess ad. I sent you a link to it, by the way. Oh yeah, in the host thing. But we got you know we got the Slim Jim ad uh, with the werewolf reference. Uh, the ad under that though would interest you. Enter the Razzles. Dazzle stakes and win a grand prize trip to Walt Disney World. Sweet. 
So we've now, what got, year is this? Uh, 75. Ah, oh, damn. I, I had, uh, as a kid, I was at Disney in, what, 74, I believe. So I had just uh, had just been there. Don't remember it very well. <laughs> we got an ad for the fifth issue of Amazing World of DC Comics, which is focusing on Sheldon Mayer. And under that is a Batman and Robin from the 60s uh, subscription offer. We've got the Join the New Top Sports Club. Uh, and I guess we don't have to go on about how God damn it, we don't care about baseball cards. <laughs> um, so the superhero stick-ons that we talked about over at Tales of the the JSA. My favorite, in all honesty, she had this picture of a, you know, not ugly housewife, uh, like looking shamefully at the camera in the kitchen, and it says, are your children ashamed that you never finished high school? <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> hippie, get a job. Uh, a thing for ugly, ugly dog tags. Just horrendously ugly U.S. drinking team. (laughs) Love me, squeeze me, take me home. Fragile, handle with love and care. Just passing through. I'll make you an offer you can't refuse. I care. Why don't you? USA loving team. Help. I need loving. So basically anything... This is the Spencers of the 1970s. (laughs) Essentially, this is... Um, there is a badass two-page ad, or there are two pages of ads. One, it says, first, uh, the line of DC superstars gave you the world's greatest superheroes, and it shows Flash, Black Canary, uh, Captain Marvel, Superman, Batman. And it says, then, the line of DC superstars introduced you to top-quality mystery tales. And you've got Kane, you've got Abel, the Phantom Stranger, the Spectre, Swamp Thing, a really ugly Swamp Thing. And it says, now the line of DC superstars presents fantasy at its best in our all-new adventure line, which is Justice Incorporated, Claw, Tor, Stalker, Warlord, Beowulf, and Kong. And I think it's safe to say that Warlord is the only one that had legs on this Right. On the opposite page, it has uh, two more king-size specials with that badass uh, Batman uh, treasury edition where he's looking into the sky and there's, like, the Joker, Catwoman, and the Penguin. We saw that the other day. Really should have bought that, but those Daredevil comics were too good to pass up. Um, Lastly, we do have a Charles Atlas ad. (laughs) And all I can think of is the Rocky Horror Picture Show at this point. But anyways... (laughs) But that brings us to the hostess ad. It's a Superman one, and it's called The Spy. So so what I'm assuming here is that one of Clark's co-workers at the WGBS building has broken into his office because uh, the guy Superman is outside using his telescopic vision to look in on his office, and the, the snoop goes, here's a secret spring. Hey, a secret closet. Look, Superman's clothes. Could Kent be Superman in disguise? Wait till the boss sees these Superman outfits. Clark Kent will never scoop us again. Uh, and, and Superman's like, my telescopic vision tells me someone's found my spare costumes. Later, so he's led basically all of Clark's co-workers into the office. He says, right this way, folks. Now just look at what Clark Kent's, what's in Clark Kent's secret closet. He's in for a big surprise. What the? It's full of Hostess fruit pies. I'll take apple. Cherry for me. Blueberry here. 
And you have this kind of hot blonde in glasses going, hmm, tastes that delicious fruit filling. It's like Deb, Deb Whitman from Spider-Man, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> looks like it, actually. And the guy's boss goes, okay, smart guy, you're fired. Ah, boss! Well, Clark, Lois says, you may not be Superman, but you sure have too- super taste. I wonder if a Superman costume would fit me, Clark says. Clark, you just outsmarted him. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> uh, you get a big delight in every bite of Hostess fruit pies. So, while it's kind of stupid, at least it somewhat makes sense. Uh, I guess, except why does Superman need spare costumes when the one he's wearing is completely indestructible? <laughs> and I wonder if he went back to that uh, that grocer that he took all the fucking cupcakes from for those aliens that were going to destroy <laughs> <her>. <laughs> that guy's yeah. That guy comes off of his lunch breaks, comes out, there's not a fucking hostess pie in the place. It's like, God. Damn it. Damn it, Superman. <laughs> the man who hated <laughs> Superman. <laughs> no, that was a, it was a really fun issue to read, though. I will say that. This was a bizarre, bizarre... I really should send this to Chris. I think he'd get a kick out of it. I'd love, love... If, I God, I wish so badly that I had an ounce of artistic ability in me. Because it would be great to rework this ad to be actually only two panels long. You've got the first panel that shows Superman using his telescopic vision to see the guy finding his spare costumes. And then the second panel is Superman hurling the guy into the sun. And that's it. (laughs) What is it with you and Superman hurling people into the sun? Because, man, Superman could solve 99.9% of his and the world's problems if he would just hurl people into the sun. And the one fucking time that he did hurl somebody into the sun, it totally came back to bite him in the ass when he threw uh, the eradicator Eradicator. into the sun. Yes. You know... It occurs to me that the game Superman would play would be, uh, can he get the person to the sun without it popping like a balloon due to the vacuum of space? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I made it to Mercury that time. (laughs) be terrible. Or, you know, you could actually, again, if I had an ounce of artistic ability, take one of those classic covers that showed, like, Superman had some, like, hideous child or, or brother or something that he kept chained up in the basement, you know, cause there's a bunch of those covers too, where it's like, yeah. you know, I'm Superman's freakish offspring that, you know, he's embarrassed of kind of covers, but change it to where it's this guy that's been chained up in, in some super cave somewhere <laughs> with a bunch of other people that have stumbled upon his secret identity. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you got Pete Ross and his son down there and oh man, it would be great. Now if you're all good, I'll get cable. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of the comicforums.com. 
Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.libsyn.com and is a registered trademark of Demanzocor of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com slash league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. 